pathetic song, The World Will Know. We'll take a little step toward that reality today. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Remember, today we're invited, and I rarely say those words. (laughs) We're invited as a church to a joint community church picnic, and it's right around here, right around the corner. If you Google it, I'm sure you'll find it. And it's at Memorial Park in New Kensington, 1500 Stevenson Boulevard. And Pastor Brown tells me it's near the Kingdom Hall, right? Well, you'll find it. It's right nearby here. I'm not good at directions. And Pastor Brown and his wife Pauletta will be there. I'm going because Pauletta's going to be there. And she's the spiritual one in the family, in the, in the marriage. So she sanctifies him. See, that, that, that's how that works. So... Plus, there's food there, and fun, and children are welcome. That's Today, it begins when the fog lifts, 1.30, the fog will be lifted, the sun will be out, the sun will be manifested. So, speaking of New Kensington, I understand one of our favorite sons, who is now with the Lord, was New Ken Ron, we called him, Ron Hale, and I understand that his son, Chris, is with us, and his son, too, and somewhere here. So let's give him a warm welcome, in, even if he's in the overflow room. He'll be surprised. Any son of Ron's is a friend of mine. I mentioned after a message this week, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, one of the two, because those are the two. But I mentioned that I have a message although it may come in many parts, I have a message that if I were a prophet of God and he gave me a message for my generation and for the next couple generations, this would be it. And I think you might understand this. The title, by the time I'm done today, it's called Paul, Irenaeus, and I. And, colon, reality is Jesus. And so this would be, if I were a prophet, and I'm not, but if I were a prophet with a message of hope to our generation, all the way down to my grandson's generation, and they're going to need it more than we do, it would be this one. Now, there's going to be some technicalities in it because my message is usually characterized by getting the precise nature of words, whether they're English or Greek, to get the precise message across. But follow. I hope you'll follow. Reality is Jesus. I was sentimentalizing yesterday as Pam and I drove by St. John the Baptist Church, I think it's out on Unity, Trestle Row, because I grew up in North Bennington, Vermont, and I served as an altar boy in St. John the Baptist Church. So I started with St. John the Baptist, and now in our community in Oakmont, there is St. Irenaeus Church. And it kind of shows my own spiritual journey from St. John the Baptist to St. Irenaeus, who was born in the 
first century and died just as the, I think, year 202 he died. Actually, he was born in 125, the second century A.D., and died around 2002. The church in Oakmont then is named after him, and I wonder if his message is proclaimed there. I've been there a few times for funerals, but I haven't heard that message yet. I did give it slightly in a reading one time. So regarding Irenaeus, his most famous book was called Against Heresies. And he sort of followed up on 1 Timothy 6.20 when Paul says to Timothy to speak against knowledge that is so-called knowledge, so-called knowledge, which ended up being Gnosticism. Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies, and it's very famous and worth studying. J.N.D. Kelly, who did one of the best studies I've ever seen on the early church doctrines, speaks of Irenaeus and his distinctive interpretation of the work of Christ. And this, pay careful attention to this, I've really homed in on a lot of things today that I've been talking about almost since 2007. But he says this, the key conception, which Irenaeus, I should probably spell it for you, so you won't be embarrassed as note takers when you realize how bad you misspelled it, because I do all the time, Irenaeus. The key conception which Irenaeus employs to explain this, which is the work of Christ, is recapitulation. Now, you've heard me mention that many times, but the Greek word for this is ana, A-N-A, kephaliosis, K-E-P-H-A-L-A-I, omega-O-S-I-S, ana, Kephaliosis, kephaliosis. And this is very closely related to another word that you're very familiar with in this congregation, apokatastasis, the restoration of all things. This word is a better word, as I'll show you, for the work of Christ, the ultimate result of his shameful death by crucifixion and his glorious resurrection from the dead. Anakephaliosis. And we have right in the middle here the word for the head, Christ the head, kephale. Everything summed up again in Christ. So again, the key conception which Irenaeus employs to explain this work of Christ is recapitulation, which he borrows from St. Paul's description of the divine purpose being Quote, to sum up all things in Christ. Irenaeus understands, and he quotes against heresies, 3.16.6, the Pauline text as implying that the Redeemer gathers together. Now we'll see, as per Brian Messick's recent message, that that Redeemer is the kinsman Redeemer, that the Redeemer gathers together includes, or here's the key word, comprises, comprises, and I'll show you why, the whole of reality. The Redeemer gathers together, includes, or comprises 
That's the key word, I would say. The whole of reality in himself, the human race being included. Now, comprises, and this is because the English language is changing so fast that a lot of things that in traditional English weren't accepted are now being accepted. So I'm going back to the traditional use of the word comprise. My favorite book, other than the Bible, is the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition. Now, under this word, comprise, according to them, it means to be composed of or to contain. Now, I study the American Heritage College Dictionary because they have usage notes, synonyms, and they explain the precise distinction between words. And I've summed up a couple of things I've read there. In the usage note under comprise, they say the traditional rule, and that's what I'm going by in this case, states that the whole, W-H-O-L-E, comprises the parts. And the parts compose the whole. That He gets the, the writers here get the idea that people have mis- mixed up compose with comprise. But he says the whole comprises the parts and the parts compose the whole. So they use, in strict usage, they use this sentence. The union comprises 50 states. So all the 50 states are comprised of the union. The union comprises 50 states. Or, and then, 50 states compose or make up the union. So I'm using the word comprise, that's C-O-M-P-R-I-S-E, under the traditional rule, the whole is Christ. The parts, all of creation, which Paul calls tapanta, the all things. And that's a word that we've used quite often. It's even on a Ted Lestai member's license plate. Tapanta, not in Greek. Tapanta, T-A-P-A-N-T-A, two different words. So... I'm using that sense, the whole, W-H-O-L-E, being Christ, the parts, all creation, and all time, we're going to see. Under synonyms, the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, adds this, comprise usually implies that all of the components are stated. They use an example. The book comprises 15 chapters. In Irenaeus' interpretation of Paul's use of anakephaliao, Christ comprises all things. That's everything universally without any exception of anything that was ever made, anything ever created. And to get some of the technicalities out of the way, in the un, in under the usage note, for the synonym... Include, sometimes include is a synonym for comprise, but it doesn't quite do the work, doesn't do the job, because they say this, the word include generally suggests that what follows is a partial list, not an exhaustive list of the contents of what the subject refers to. Therefore, a sentence like New England includes Connecticut and Rhode Island
is acceptable since it implies that there are states that are also part of New England but are not mentioned in the list. And they say this is a correct usage. When a full enumeration is given, a different construction, such as one using comprise, is used, must be used. And so they have the sentence, New England comprises or consists of Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. He goes on to say that there are cases in which include does not rule out the possibility of a complete listing, but comprise has to include all the elements, all seven states that make up New England. And so Vermont is always in New England. Vermont is always New England. It's, it's comprised by New England. New England is the whole, the states are the part, but the, all those seven states compose New England, and New England comprises all those states. The upshot of this is that the whole comprises the parts. So here's a sentence for you. It's a theologic, Christological sentence. Christ comprises all the members of the body of Christ. So we understand Christ to be the whole and all the members' parts of Christ. This understanding is buttressed and supported by Paul's God-breathed teaching in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, which says this, For as the body, speaking of the human body, the anatomy of the human body, for as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. So also is Christ. Again, for as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. In this sentence, Christ comprises all the members of the body of Christ. Christ Jesus is announced there to comprise all the parts of the body. Not some, not an elite few, not an elect few, all the parts of that body. Just as New England comprises, now you're going to have to get realize that many words that we're using today won't be used when our grandchildren grow up. New England, New York, all these words are going to be different in 50 years. And that's because of the changing move of culture which is necessary. It actually may start out controversially, but it's necessary. There are things in this age that keep passing away, and that includes a lot of illustrious things in history. They pass away, and they're revealed to be what they really are, and it's not what you think. But just as what is now called New England comprises all seven states in its territory, so Christ comprises all the members of the body of Christ, which is called the church. Specifically, the body of Christ called the church in Ephesians 1.22. In this way, if I were writing a theological, systematic theology, I would say that ecclesiology, the study of the church, is subordinate to 
Christology, the study of Christ. Christ the head, the church the sum of the parts, Christ the whole comprising all the parts without exception. Even the weakest members. As Paul says, even those members which are not attractive, which are not visible or glamorous in their presentation or spectacular in their charisma. In fact, he says, upon these, he heaps more honor. More honor. Now, it is precisely in Ephesians, which is Paul's letter to the Laodiceans, as we know from Colossians 4.16, but we'll still call it Ephesians. It is precisely in Ephesians where we're confronted with the term anakephaliao, which is the aorist middle infinitive form of the verb to gather up or to unite. The result of the summing up of all things in Christ is that Christ comprises all things without exception, even as he now presently comprises the body of Christ. In Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no black or white. There is no Muslim or Jewish or Christian label. In Christ, it says that Christ is in all. And... All is Christ, meaning the body of Christ is comprised of Christ. That's why Paul realized I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ comprises my life now. Now, even though we still have within us the propensity toward the flesh and a battle raging within us, it's an apocalyptic eschatological war. It's going on right in here, not out there. It's going on out there, but it's going on in here. People would be a lot less critical of other people, and there'd be a lot less wrath. And as we said, wrath, you think of wrath, God's wrath. I don't see God's wrath. I see people's wrath everywhere. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait and get angry. Because anger never, repeat, anger never, never has, never will. Anger never accomplishes the righteousness of God. It never lends anything to God's program of deliverance. Never. That's why when we meet together for the word in James 1.20... 119 says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Because the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. People want to talk about the wrath of God. I don't see any of it today. I see the wrath of people, which is self-destructive of people. Their own wrath destroys them. If we knew the battle within us and we knew our own Adamic ontology and were presented with it by God, which he does first before he presents Christ to us, he introduces us to ourselves. And in our flesh, there is no good thing. And the human heart is so deceitful, there's no metrics for it. Recently, Aaron Judge of the Yankees hit a home run so far, there was no metrics to measure it. 
So I'm going to start following the Yankees, but I haven't quite given up on the Pirates. Not quite. Not quite. So I always have to wait till the end of the season, then start following, see what the Yankees are doing, see what the Dodgers are doing, my dad's team. The Dodgers, they're tough. But I said that to say there's no metrics that can define. I don't care the best psychiatrist going. Even theologians, you can't measure the depth of the deceptiveness of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can know it? And so it's called the log in our own eye. The log. Get the log out of your own eye. Then you can helpfully pull the speck out of your brother's eyes. You see, his lenses can't see what you see. So you don't criticize him. You pull that little moat out of there, that little doctrine, that Christian doctrine that stops him from seeing through the eyes of Christ crucified. The eyes of Christ crucified see the whole human race as a field ripe for universal harvest. And so if we knew our own Adamic ontology, we would be presented with the full-time job of walking in the spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, which is not just sexual or sensual lust, but it's the desire and the ambition to promote one's own righteousness against others. Almost all the anger today in society is promoted by self-righteousness. And the sentimentality towards self, which proposes the stupid concept, I'm innocent. Nobody's innocent except one innocent lamb of God who was slaughtered but who now stands. And I'll show you where he stands soon. So then, anakephaliah, oh, in Ephesians 1.10, means to sum up, to recapitulate, to gather up, unite. The result of that summing up of all things in Christ is that Christ comprises all things, all beings. Everything that has being, he comprises. And this fulfills, in my view, this is where I do agree with Augustine, the Septuagint translation of Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning, and it doesn't mean a beginning in terms of time, it means Christ, NRK, in Christ, NRK. Because Paul says in Colossians 1-18, Christ is the beginning. And Revelation says it also in Revelation 3-14. And in Revelation 21.6 and 21.13. So in the RK, God made the heavens and the earth. We could say that still God in Christ is making the heavens and the earth, which is the contents of all created reality. He's making to be in Christ. If any person is in Christ, that's the church. There's the new creation. We could say the new creation in progress. Not the new creation finished. That would make us really something. But it's the new creation on the way to completion. So, God made the heavens and the earth. In the end, Revelation 25, he says, look, I'm making everything new. There's a new heavens and a new earth. It's comprised of Christ. 
It's made of him who was not made, but who became flesh. The consummation of God's plan. And that's why the bride and groom analogy is used, because it refers to a moment of consummation of a marriage. The consummation of God's plan is to make everything to be comprised of his son. And because the father is pleased to dwell in his son and the spirit is pleased to dwell in his son, then his son comprising all the universe is a house for the father and the spirit to live. And we're going to see that. I might have to fan this out to this is this message is going to have to be fanned out in future teachings. But the consummation of God's plan is to make everything to be comprised of his son and then for the father and the spirit to reside in the universe as a glorious residence. So in this Ephesian fragment, I'm speaking specifically of one nine through 11, but mostly at the heart of it in verse 10, it is said that the revealed secret on the mystery of God's will, to Thelematos, God's intention, is, and listen carefully, because this is the first time I've attempted to totally translate Ephesians 1.10, is, quote, for the final setting in order of God's universal household. Because the word oikonome is used, oikonome, which is where we get our word economy, but it means household rule or the management of a household. So God's purpose is, in verse 10, for the final setting in order of God's universal household in the fullness of times. We'll see that that little phrase also shows that not only does Christ comprise everything spatially, but he comprises everything temporally. He takes all history into himself. He takes all time into himself. He redeems everything in your past that you hate. He redeems everything in my past that was sinful. And he takes away every possibility of evil in the ultimate future, including every possibility of wrath in the future. Now, so here it is, Ephesians 1.10, for the final setting in order of God's universal household in the fullness of times, to recapitulate, there's our word, anakephaleao, to recapitulate, gather up, sum up, unite all things, tapanta, strong word, Paul uses it, it's a key term in his mean, and it means universe. The entire universe of proportionate being, both spatially and temporally. Anything that has being, anything that came into being, anything called into being that did not exist before. So far from our own resources is our salvation. That Paul makes sure that we know that the God who saved us saved us by the same power that he calls things into existence that didn't exist before. So if you think you're, you can save yourself, then bring the universe into existence out of non-existence, and you'll prove to me you can save yourself. 
or raise someone from the dead so that their body is not only resurrected or resuscitated, but immortal and incorruptible and not susceptible to death or fatigue or aging or decay forever. Do that. And you can convince me that you save yourself. Otherwise, shut up about it. Self-righteousness stinketh. It's like Lazarus four days in the grave. Now, in him, it says, again, for the final setting in order of God's universal household in the fullness of times to recapitulate, gather up, sum up, unite all things in Christ. There's the key phrase. Both things in heaven, he wants you to know, and things on earth, he said, in him. He says, in Christ, then he says, in him. It's like we would say, Everything, and I mean everything, I mean everything that has existence in the heavens, and that includes all the families of heaven, which are angelic and other strange type creatures in the heavenlies, as well as those on earth, that's what I mean in him. So again, the result of this recapitulation is that Christ comprises all things. In note 738 of the New Testament theology of Ethelbert Stauffer, he says, and I'm repeating this, the final and most daring thought of Paul, and that's where I home in, that's where I'm honing all my teaching into the final, most daring thought of Paul. And to bring up Paul's most Daring thought is quite daring in our times because our times, Christianity has not yet accepted this. In fact, they are violently opposed to this, which shows the measure of self-righteousness still hovering over the church, still dwelling in the secret corners of the subterranean heart of Christians who even say we're saved by grace. There still lingers a self-righteousness that does not gather people in, but scatters them abroad. I don't blame people for fleeing from churches, and I don't blame people from fleeing for, from Christ, because the Christ they're fleeing from is not Christ, according to Paul's final most daring thought. So he says this, the final and most daring thought of Paul is the future outlook of Colossians, which has affected Ephesians. Now, I don't think that Colossians affects Ephesians. I think Ephesians was the first thing Paul wrote. So that's a different, we'll take that up in a different time. But he says, the final and most daring thought of Paul is the future outlook of Colossians that has affected Ephesians. And in that epistle is given conceptual formulation in the apt word recapitulation. And Stauffer doesn't like the word apocatastasis. He says it's entirely inappropriate. It's not entirely inappropriate. It's just not as good as recapitulation. He then goes on to say, it is the mystery of God's will to sum up, recapitulate all things in Christ, things in the heavens and the things upon earth. And then he says, Christ takes up universal 
history, which since Adam has been set on the way to death, so as to give it henceforth an all-inclusive end in salvation. It's what I like to call the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. The universal slash, the universal impact of the crucifixion of Christ. For we know, after all, the result of crucifixion was a glorious resurrection. So just as rectification for dikaiosis is a much better word than justification... That's not saying that the TV show Rectify is better than the TV show Justified. But the the TV show Rectify came after Justified, and I thought it was a copycat. But then I thought, wait a minute, Rectify is better than Justify in terms of a precise word. Because Rectify means to set something right that went wrong. And when God justifies or rectifies the ungodly, that's what he does. He sets things right that have gone horribly wrong. And there's nothing wrong in this world that will not be set right. There's nothing terribly, atrociously wrong in this world today that will not be set gloriously, marvelously right When all things are summed up in Christ, nothing. That's my message to you. Everything will be all right. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not while sin still reigns over the majority of humanity. Not where the flesh still is the ally of the Torah, the law. But everything is going to be all right cross proves that that which was ungodly and ugly and shameless and ignominious and the worst kind of death gave way to the most glorious unspeakable indescribable glory which will be shared with all and shed abroad throughout the whole of the universe that's my message because Paul Irenaeus and I And I put I in small instead of large I because I'm insignificant in this. But I see what these men have seen because I've spent long enough time, and so have you, in the epistles of Paul to come to his insight, which is what the whole purpose of the epistles are. When you read Anaganesco, when you study carefully, you will come up to my insight. And Paul's insight is the insight of a man who has the mind or sees the horizon of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, which among other things means we have in us the horizon that he sees through his eyes. And he says to his disciples, his disciples see Samaritans. Racially, ethnically despised by pure Jews. Samaritans are coming. They're coming with their robes and their turbans and their hats and the whole town's coming out to hear Jesus. And they believed. And they're thinking the Samaritans. In Luke 9, it even says, should we rain down fire on these people? And Jesus said, you have no idea what spirit you're functioning in right now. 
You have no idea. And I have no idea, many times, what spirit I'm in. I've had days where I prayed, Father, bless what I have to do today, and then I get really mad, and then the Holy Spirit says, the only thing that can mess up your day today, which I plan to be good, is your own attitude. Nothing can curse this day but you. That's when rebound comes handy. It's not, oh, let me list the things I did today, which I don't really care about, but God calls them sin. Let me name them. That's not rebound. Rebound is when he gets right into the depths of your heart and you actually acknowledge how unlike Christ you are. And then it's all good. So people talk about the wrath of God today. I don't see God's wrath. I see people mad. Everywhere. And that only proves what Jeremiah said. Your sin is its own punishment. Your wrath is your own self-destruction. Because it's built on the sentimentality that you are innocent and they are evil. See, there has a, you say, what would you call that that you just did then? Practical application. We want practical application. Well, really? How'd you like to be introduced to who you are outside of Christ first and then introduced to Christ second? That's what the message is all about. We're not, we have to be introduced sometimes to the first man, Adam, born of the dust, before we're introduced to the second man, Christ, the man from heaven. What did Isaiah say when he saw the Lord high and lifted up? Woe! Unto me. I'm a sinful man. I dwell among a sinful people. My lips are unclean, just like the unclean lips of all the people. I can say all day long, I hate when you swear. I hate when you do this. But everything we say from our own self-orientation in sentimental innocence is just as blasphemous as anything else that comes from the rotten speech of mankind, which grieves the Holy Spirit. But then he said, God sent a seraph to the charcoal, to the hibachi in heaven. There's a hibachi at the base of the altar. It's got coals in it. The seraph took a coal, flew instantly to Isaiah, and he touched his mouth with it. And then God God says, now speak for me. Speak for me. He purified his speech. As a prophet... That's Isaiah 6. The whole story is told in that chapter. So just as rectification is a better word than justification to describe what God does to the ungodly. That's me. Romans 4, 5. It's only my recognition of that now. I'm not kidding. It's only my recognition of who I am without Christ which I never forget that keeps me from taking the bait that certain forces are trying to get everyone to take because there is a goal to split this country and then turn both sides violent. So the whole country is taken down through the worst civil war in human history. That's the goal. 
But everybody, you see, it starts by taking the bait. Because you take the bait because you're righteous and they're not. The line runs through us all, folks. The line of good and evil runs through us all. The deceptive human heart belongs to us all. It shows itself in different ways under different circumstances. If anything gets me mad today, it's self-righteousness. But then I have to look at my self-righteousness. And then everything's handled. And then you know what you can do? Strange thing happens. Love mankind in its totality. Because you realize this message. If one died for all, then all died. From henceforth, therefore, the love of Christ constrains me. The self-righteous distinguish categories of humanity. Those who love with the love of Christ see what Jesus saw when he saw the Samaritans coming. You know what he said? The field is ripe for harvest. The field is ripe for harvest. He didn't see Samaritans. In fact, when the Pharisees attacked him and said, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon... Jesus answered by saying, well, I don't have a demon. But why didn't he say I'm not a Samaritan? Because he identified with those despised people as much as he identified with the Jews. He identified with the least, with the hated, with the maligned. Jonah found out he even identified with Nineveh. He became sin after all. Did you forget that? Don't. I speak three times to myself and once to you. See, three fingers. But if I don't have the right to say you once in a while in an exhortational way, I might as well fold it up, go home, retire, resign, hide. Which is what my flesh would often like to do. Please, Lord, do not expose me to their angry eyes again. That's, only, that's not you. I'm only kidding. That's weddings. He said, submit. He's not worthy of living. Doesn't he understand the spirit of the age? He said, submit. Sorry. Sad. I've always preferred funerals because you have a, honestly, there's more of a sympathetic audience there, but, uh, and uh, they listen. I see the fields, they're already ripe for harvest. See through those eyes. Just as rectification is better than justification, so anakephaleosis, in my view, is a better word than even than apokatastasis. In Acts 3.21, to express what God does ultimately in the fullness of times. Or when the time is ripe, like the harvest is ripe. When he said the harvest is ripe, he doesn't just mean the harvest of the Samaritans. He means the harvest of the nations. Because when all the nations come in, play Roma, the totality of the nations, then pass all Israel will be saved. Play Roma of the pagans, the, I call it the pagan play Roma. 
I'm part of a pagan pleroma, graced out pagans. When the pagan pleroma comes in, pleroma, totality, then all pas Israel will be saved. Pleroma plus pas equals the whole human race. I'm so glad we're not saved by race, but that we're saved by grace. So glad I'm not saved by gender, but by regeneration. The reason I'm glad I'm not saved by race is because I don't know what my race is. I haven't spit in the tube yet and sent it into Ancestry.com. I haven't done that. I want to do that, but I don't know what I am. So I guess I'm just a mutt. I think it's great to do that, though, because you find out you're parts of a whole bunch of different people that you, oh, I'm part of them. We drop our biases, we drop our prejudices, we drop our reasons to hate, because all reasons to hate are seated deeply in our own damned self-righteousness. And our desire to prefer certain people in our own kin above other people because they're innocent and righteous and not my boy and not my girl, not my, they don't do that. Yes, they do. That's, that's the word of a lousy parent because sentimentality is rooted in the worst kind of hatred because it's rooted in the heretical, blasphemous notion that some people are innocent. Paul likens the recapitulation to a final setting in order of God's universal household. It's like he's tired of it all messed up, so he's finally going to, like they say in Pittsburgh, read it up. That's why he uses the word oikonomia. Oikonomia, he uses right in that passage, oikonomia. And that's where we get our word economy. It's a household rule. He's going to set his house in order. Oiko, that's the word for house. Oikonomia is the word for law, household law. He's going to set his household in order. So oikonomia means the management of a household. So we can translate again, Ephesians 1.10, as to its sense, because this is the heart of the message, for the final setting in order of God's household. And if you understand what he's saying in Ephesians 3.14 to 15, which is what we have to do to fan this out, he means every family, patria, in heaven and on earth. Every family, patria, in heaven and on earth, derives its identity from the Father, derives its redemption from the Son, derives its total reconciliation from the work of God in Christ. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father who gave every family in heaven and earth its name. And that is a sign that what the household is is of heaven and earth. 
So again, as to sense, for the final setting in order of God's household, that includes every family or group or grouping, that includes all families or groups or groupings in heaven and on earth. For the totality of times, he says, for the totality of times, which means by summing up everything in Christ, and that means, as we've been learning, that all, so that Christ comprises all things, and all things are composed of Christ. That includes all the things in heavens and all the things on earth in him. So here's Ephesians 1.10. For the final setting in order of God's household, for the totality of times, by summing up everything in Christ, so that Christ comprises all things and all things are composed of Christ, including all the things in heaven and all the things on earth in him. Thus, time is redeemed. Time itself is redeemed. As Ephesians 5.16 hints at, and all created reality is redeemed in all of its times. That's extremely important. All created reality in all of its times, in all of its epochs, in all of its ages, in all of its generations. We can point to, point to certain terrible evils in other generations, but fail to recognize that there is sometimes even worse evils in our own generations and even evil tendencies in our own Adamic ontology. So in this one verse, we're granted Paul's insight, namely that in Christ, not only are all things that have being, everything, all things means everything that has existence, everything that has being or ever had being are to be recapitulated in him. But it also means that all times are recapitulated in him. Thus, time is redeemed. All created reality is redeemed in all of its times. And that's what Stauffer meant when he said Christ takes up universal history so as to give it henceforth an all-inclusive end in salvation. So Christ takes up or comprises all time, all history, because he calls himself the first and the last, which someone has rightly said means everything in between. He's comprised all of history. History itself is redeemed and recapitulated in Christ so that the history of all things becomes the history of Christ. Therefore, it has been crucified in a downward trajectory which it now displays and it will be resurrected in an upward trajectory which is not yet displayed except in segments of the messianic community some of which you would never believe or, or dream, some of which are obscure members, never introduced to the public, never seen, but interceding for all mankind quietly. This is how God, in closing, restores the years that the locust has eaten, to use the stark image of Joel 2.25. That's how he destroys the evil of the past, and rectifies the past of every person while also removing the prospect of evil from the ultimate future. So-called Christian preachers speak of a day 
in which God will vent his wrath. They speak of a final judgment. But the truth of the matter is, to use a phrase that's overused, the reality of the matter is, as people like to say, because they're trying to still think of something to say, like I am. The reality is that God has set things right in the judgment of the judge on the cross. And that the final judgment, which will be an evaluation of all of us, without exception, will be an evaluation through Jesus Christ. Which can only involve exoneration, acquittal, final glorification. And the trauma, sometimes, for some, the trauma of transformation by grace into the supreme good. It was a trauma for Paul. It'll be a trauma for others, but it'll have a good result. In other words, all of creation was crucified with its creator on Calvary. All of creation was crucified with its creator on Calvary, buried with him, and raised out of death into life with him by the glory of the Father. He who created all things, and he through whom all things are created, and Isaiah 48, 7 says, don't speak about things created then. They are created now. When faith is elicited at the hearing of this gospel, A new creation is created right then, not way back when. Stop saying things have been created in the past. They are created now. Right now, God is creating the heavens and the earth in Christ. Don't say then, say now. Isaiah 48, 7. Read that verse sometime. He who created all things and through whom all things are created, redeems all things, rectifies all that went wrong in the creation with the entrance of sin and death. All that needs to be set right will be set right. And everything will be all right. That's hope. And all of this is because of the Christ event in the heart of the divine missions. We're still fanning that out. In the heart of that event is the crucifixion of God's Messiah. Unspeakably shameful. A scandal. The recapitulation is inextricably inextricably linked to the crucifixion. You can never separate it. That's why I personally insist on calling the universal recapitulation the result of the universal impact of the cross of Christ called instaration. The unspeakably shameful death of the son after all is said and done was validated dramatically by the father as the son was dramatically vindicated in a thing called resurrection. The unspeakably shameful death of the son after all was validated and vindicated by an unspeakably glorious resurrection.
The crucifixion and death of Jesus was to take away the sin of the world, even as his resurrection was the setting right of what went terribly wrong in the universal creation due to the entrance of sin. Sin that entered in through the first man was taken away by the second. Closing number two, the result of this recapitulation is that Christ will comprise not only all the members of his body. It's a little longer than I planned on because I took out time to preach three times in this message. The result of this recapitulation then is that Christ will comprise not only all the members of his body, the church, but all beings, all things, all created reality at all times. And all times will be comprised by him. So this brings us back to Irenaeus' interpretation of Paul's boldest word. And of the work of Christ. Irenaeus' take, we could say. Which comes closest to the heart of the message that God has given to me for you. This little piece of Irenaeus' message. So it's not me, myself, and Irene. It's Paul, Irenaeus, and I. What Irenaeus said captures really the heart of the message that I have for you. Not for this generation, but for you. But it is the message that belongs to this whole generation and the next two to follow. The Redeemer, Jesus, gathers together, includes or comprises the whole of reality in himself, the human race being included. In other words, reality is Jesus. Or his name isn't Jesus. Reality is Jesus. Jesus comprises the whole of reality in himself. So that reality itself in all of its totality is Jesus. He is the way and there is no other. He is the truth, which is another way of saying he is reality and there is no other. And he is the life. And that means the life. And there is no other. But the shared life of the creation with him. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So it's actually a liberation of all that people want. All that they want about freedom. All that they want about being themselves is only realized in being in Christ and Christ comprising us. Then we are who we are in redemption. And there's perfect freedom there. That's why the eschatological moment for us is called the glorious freedom of the children of God, always at play in the fields of the Lord with the ecstatic joy of children in glory. So I want to quote Job sympathetically. In other words, I can identify with him and I agree wholeheartedly with what he said in the heart of his suffering, in the heart of his loss of his family, the heart of his loss of his goods, the heart of the loss of his health, the heart of his loss of his friends. He said this, as for me, 
I know that my kinsman redeemer is living. And as the last, not at the last, but as the last, the eschatos anthropos, as the last, he will take his stand. Job saw the vision that John saw, the slaughtered lamb. When he said, I know he's living. And when I say, I know he's living, it's pretty profound because he died. I know he's living. My crucified Messiah is living. My kinsman redeemer is living. My genetics are all wrapped up in that kinsman. My life is his life. His life is now mine. And yet mine is uniquely mine now. Because when my life is mine without God, it's strange that we give it away and lose it to other forces and other people's desires and other people's ambitions. But when we lose our life in this age, last week's message where I beat you up a little, it was only in preparation for this message where I beat you up a little more, but then brought this edification. As for me, I know that my kinsman redeemer is living and as the last, he will take his stand. Doesn't say on the earth. It says on the dust. He will take his stand on the dust. The first man, Adam, was made of dust. He'll take his stand. The Adamic ontology will be under his feet. As well as death and sin. Then Job said, even after my skin is destroyed... And it was already destroyed by cancerous boils and welts and terrible things when he was speaking there. God miraculously healed him and gave him about at least 75 more years of life after that. And they were all good. Even after my skin is destroyed, he says, yet from my flesh, I shall see God whom I myself shall behold. Notice the wording of this, because I had to fix this from the Hebrew and the, it, from looking at the Hebrew and the Greek. Whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, my own eyes will see, not any longer through the eyes of another, not through the eyes of Paul who saw him at Damascus, not through the eyes of teachers, not through the eyes of Irenaeus, but through my own eyes, I will see God, my Redeemer. And to quote John, when we see him, we'll be like him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to bring this message. It is the message that has been fine-tuned, in my case, for 40 years plus, ever since 1972 in January, in the dead of winter in upstate Vermont, which is comprised or (coughs) part of New England. I thank you, Father. There is no greater hope than the hope that is Christ Jesus. You, Father, are called the God of hope at the end of Romans. And I ask you now to cause our hope to abound and superabound. Because our hope is not disappointed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. May our hope be contagious in this generation. 